And we are live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 24 of History's Greatest Idiots, the show in which we delve through the depths of history to bring you the stupidest, deranged, most idiotic moments ever forethought or created by human intelligence. And, you know, uh, hopefully you will learn lessons from this and, and never repeat the mistakes of the past. But who are we kidding? Uh, we like repeating the mistakes of the past because sometimes, you know, retro is fun. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, just look at Stranger Things. You know, that whole show is just retro porn, basically. That's... Yeah. Oh, it, <laughs> it is. It, it, yeah. it makes me want to go ride around on my uh, my BMX and go down to the arcade. And... I am not knocking it. I love retro shit. <laughs> I am as much of a sucker for that kind of opium of the masses as as anybody else but um yeah i am fully aware that that show would probably be 25 percent less interesting if it weren't focused on 80s middle america so yeah, yeah. oh speaking of 80s middle america i would just watch that 8-bit christmas on i think it's on oh, yeah. netflix that's a good throwback and the whole time i was like dude i had that jacket oh my god oh, i nice. had the same boots <laughs> so <laughs> It's, it's funny because like the 80s, I mean, obviously it's when I was a child and I'm sure you were a child as well. Um, I, that was, I think, the point at which like mainstream American popular culture really started to kind of infiltrate British culture. I mean, particularly like the 60s and 70s and obviously the 50s, like music, movies, stuff like that have been coming across. But by the 80s, things like merchandise, and clothing like that all made its way over to the UK and you know a lot of kids my generation grew up wearing Spider-Man pajamas and, and <laughs> shit like that and like um, He-Man shirts and like everybody had the toys and you know that wasn't necessary I mean there, there were people who had that in the 70s but in the 80s it became a mass produced thing culturally so I, yeah I think, I think that's in the 70s, why we were still stealing your guys's culture with the British invasion and whatnot. Yeah, of course. I think that's <laughs> possibly why. I mean, it has shifted. The nostalgia train has now moved on from the 80s station and moved into the junction that is the 1990s. But I certainly think that um, because that's when mass production of popular culture exploded, that's why people are still oh God, give me all of that give me ready player one give me every single ounce of nostalgia you could possibly <laughs> give me um so yeah um yeah uh, derek how has your week been how are things over in arizona uh it's been pretty good my son yeah. got his license for the first time yes that happened within three hours of getting it he was off to the races and hanging out with his friends and that was nice. the most stressful moment of my entire <laughs> life <laughs> yeah i um I, I think everybody remembers when they get their first car don't they like that's such yeah. a, a landmark moment in your life you are so much freer than you were the day before the year before then you know you can do things you can go places and like and especially in america where you need a car really for, oh, yeah. for the majority of life whereas in the uk it's like I used to walk to school at times. It was only two and a half miles up and down mountains like that. That's fine. You can do it even in the pissing rain. But like in America, you need a car because that, you know, it could be 10 fucking miles to your school or whatever. Well, so. it's it's a half a mile to his school and I still have to drive him and he won't walk. So there. <laughs> well, now I don't. But, well, yeah. I guess once we figure out the whole parking permit situation, oh, yeah. we charge for everything here. 
Yeah, we we some of our major cities do do that. There's um a place that I used to live down south called St Albans, which is just north of London, which has like parking permits per household because it's uh, a medieval. Well, it's even older. It was the old Roman capital of the UK, right? Okay. So Damn. it's two thousand years old. The the cathedral, which itself is a thousand years old, is built using the bricks and stone that were used in the Roman fort. So that's nuts. That's, fucking that's so crazy. cool. <laughs> so, so like obviously, and like the town was expanded, and and in the Middle Ages, it became very, very uh, successful. But it expanded to the point where it, it it hit the limits. Like you can't build anymore by about seventeen hundred. Like St Albans is full. So obviously, everything's elements have been redeveloped. A lot of things have been protected, but the city reached a point where like. It, the houses cost a lot more. The roads are still super narrow. The infrastructure is starting to crumble. So they had to, you know, raise money because a lot of people are affluent. So there would be, um, you could have one car per household. And then every, like the next car, you'd have to pay 20 pounds a year um, parking. And then it'd be like a hundred pounds for a third car. And then like 150 for a fourth. Damn. So yeah, it's <laughs> like, it's, it's the policy that the Chinese took to children is what some cities in the UK <laughs> take to parking permits. Like you can have it, but we won't be happy and we're going to charge you for it. So uh, yeah. I guess that makes sense. We're, we're just so consumption over mm. here that it's like, I, I have three cars. There's four of us in the house. If, right. if it were up to him, we'd have an, an extra car. So there'd be four of them. Mm. And really, I guess we don't need it because I don't ever yeah. go anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I've been dating my wife now for 11 years and th 2021 was the first time in our relationship together where we'd had more than one car. So now, now we have a car each. We may do because we'd lived in cities or we'd lived apart and stuff. And there'd be times when like, and, and actually the majority of the time that one car was usually a hunk of shit. Like it was a terrible battered thing that would just about make it to the long distance locations that we needed it for. But now we both have moderately okay cars. They're not, you know, we're not going to go ragging them around the countryside at a hundred miles an hour, but still we have two cars and we have space on our drive. And like, we feel like we made it because in the UK, like that's actually for my generation, for the older millennials, it's still kind of unusual for both of you to have a car and a house with a mortgage. Like well, hold on. Very you get you're claiming the millennial tag because I'm the just same about. age as you, and I'm just I'm in that lost generation of awesome people that <laughs> got the the technology of the yeah. being a kid in the '90s and the yeah. awesomeness of being a kid in the '80s. Absolutely. So we win. I yeah, I think <laughs> the I saw a term for it. It's called a zillennial. So heart a bit Gen Z, bit millennial. So like yeah. we both know what VHSs are and probably both of us at some point have played with a, a, a Betamax player. Uh, uh, yep, yep. And, I, a, I and a laser disc. And a laser disc. And, and I have worked a lot with mini discs. You know, some people of our generation will remember mini discs. But at the same time, so we, we know about analog. We're very familiar with analog. But at the same time, there will be people out there like our age who will also still be helping their parents to understand technology and being able to keep up with people for the most part who are 20 years younger than them, hence why we're using StreamYard. Uh, so <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, while we're talking about generations, Derek, who is your idiot for this week? 
Well, I've got uh, a pretty good one, I think. I mean, I don't know if he was a, a an idiot in general, but he did some real dumb shit. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of people that are really great at a lot of things, and some of them are, are so good at one or two things that they think they can do everything. And I think right. this guy is one of those. Okay. Um, his name is Robert O'Hara Burke. He started out uh, as an Irish soldier and a police officer and later on went on to do something else that put him on my radar. But I'll talk about that in a minute. We'll start at the beginning. He was born uh, in County Galway, Ireland on May 6th, 1821. The third son of James Hardyman Burke, who was an officer in the British Army, 7th Royal uh got it this is this is a british army unit that i can't pronounce so that's okay. how bad things are here fusilers oh fusiliers yes yeah yeah those people big, yeah they're, they're like um like the royal fusiliers are, are, are like i mean they're not like the green berets or anything okay. like that but like the fusilier corps are very famous like they've been a part of some major battles major incidents and stuff um, throughout British military history. So the Fusiliers, it's quite a prestigious thing to be part of the Fusiliers. So that's really good. Well, and my apologies to the Fusiliers because I am a dumb American that doesn't know no, that. So <laughs> we get it. Like the majority um, of people outside of the UK wouldn't really know about them either. So, yeah. so he he is one of seven children of this British officer, and uh, Burke, his father, and all of his brothers were all soldiers. And one interesting thing I came across is that his brother, James Thomas, was a lieutenant in the uh, Royal Engineers. And on July 7th, 1854, at the Battle of Guiergo, <laughs> he became oh, wow. the first British officer killed in the uh, Crimean War. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, that's quite a landmark. Wow. That's that's just his brother. Just an interesting thing I came uh, mm. across along the way, but we'll get into uh, his uh, military career. Uh, he entered the Royal Military Academy at Woolwich in May of Woolwich. 1835. Did I say it wrong? No, that's Woolwich. Woolwich is it's, Woolwich. It's the whole thing, but Woolwich, Woolwich. yeah. Woolwich? Okay. Woolwich. There you go. <laughs> uh, in May of 1835, that's where he went. By December of 1836, he had failed his probationary exam and went to Belgium to further his education instead. It was probably a good choice, actually. Yeah. Belgian, yeah. In 1841, at the age of 21, he entered the Austrian army, and mm -hmm. in August of 1842, uh, he was promoted to the second lieutenant in the Prince, Re Prince Regent 7th Rus Regiment of the Hungarian Hussars. Jesus. Okay. That's a lot of <laughs> words. <laughs> that was very good. I'm very impressed. Well done. Um, he spent most of his time with the Imperial Austrian Army posted in northern Italy. And in April of 1847, he was promoted to first lieutenant. Oh, good. Okay. Towards the end of 1847, he started having some health problems and went to Recario Spa. I think I said that right. In northern Italy. Oh, um, nice. and convalescing in Italy. That sounds really nice. Right. Well, and then in a, June of 1848, he resigned from the Austrian army after charges against him relating to debts and absent without leave uh, uh, came around. But those were dropped. So he left the Austrian army and returned to Ireland in 1848, where he joined the Royal Irish Constabulary. Did I say that right? 
Yeah, you did. Hell yeah. yeah. That's good. Okay. I've been yes. saying that wrong all day. <laughs> <laughs> you did really good. You did really good. Um, he did his cadet training at the Phoenix Park Depot in Dublin and nice. was promoted to third class sub-inspector and stationed in County Kildare and later in Dublin. Okay. So he's wandered through military service, landed on being an Irish cop, which sure. I guess is, I mean, that's, that's quite a, a common a noble... transition, I think, for a lot of people, isn't it? When they they leave the military, they you know a lot of people go into the police force. Yeah, certainly in this country, I'm sure it's the same in the states. You know, a lot of people do that transition, but yeah, that's, that's seems like a good it's, career move. It's been that way for hundreds of years now. It would appear, yeah. you know. So, <laughs> so. Um, and around that time, uh, in the 1850s or so, uh, the UK was doing some really neat stuff. And as mm. part of that, Burke immigrated to Australia on a prison ship um, nice. <laughs> and arrived in, in uh, yeah, he actually was going down there to work, not being right. sent there. That oh. makes sense. Please uh, get he arrived. What's that? Please get rid of him. Put him on the ship. Just send him <laughs> to Australia. That's what we do now. Well, that's yeah, that's what they were doing at the time. They were uh, yeah, loading up the, the convicts and saying, hey, you know, at Australia down there, we've got we'll just yeah. send them there. It's an yeah. island. They can't yeah. get off without swimming. Yeah. And 80 uh, percent of it is uh, desert. And uh, generations later, the descendants are like, thanks, because it's fucking lovely here. Uh, <laughs> and, well, everything there is also trying to kill you. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> but but the beaches the uh the standard of living the women uh yeah. all just oh australia's an awesome it's an awesome place i'd, I'd love to go and the trade-off on that is sharks and sharks, deadly jellyfish spiders, and snakes yeah and giant toads destroying the countryside the neat uh <laughs> half duck half beaver venomous <laughs> mammal marsupial <laughs> thing <laughs> should not exist it should not that is a mistake of evolution right there. <laughs> anyway enough about australia let's get yes. back to australia uh he was on the victorian police force and initially posted in Karlsruhe as an inspector but he was soon promoted to a senior inspector and nice. moved to beechworth um when his brother was killed at the start of the Crimean War, he mm. did head back to England to enlist. But before he got a chance to get to any fighting, peace broke out. So he headed back down to Victoria in December of 1856. Right. OK. So he just missed, missed getting vengeance for his brother and heads back down to Australia. And I will uh, have blood. Oh, it's finished. OK. Oh, well. He was worked up and got himself involved in the Buckland Valley riots where he... Ooh beat down some Chinese gold miners uh, when the, the gold rush broke out in 1857. Mm -hmm. And in 1858, he was transferred to Castlemaine as a police superintendent. Ooh, okay. And here's where stuff gets weird because he's had this good job as a, a police officer and in the yeah. military and uh, he's, he's doing all that. And because of that gold rush, the colonists in Victoria are flush with money and they think, you know, it'd be really cool. What if we found a land route from uh, the southern area here in Victoria up to the northern coast for no real reason at all, other than we can and we have money, so let's do that. And you know who should do it? Uh, let's do John McDougal Stewart, and he only got halfway there. So let's yeah. get somebody that's even better prepared than that explorer. 
how about we get Robert O'Hara Burke, a policeman, to join up with uh, a dude named uh, William John Willis, a surveyor and astronomical observer, right. and we send them off to make a path to the northern coast. And that's what they did. <laughs> this policeman decides he's going to become an explorer. Okay, as, as you do. I mean, uh, to a certain extent. I can kind of like a lot of people were explorers around this time. I I can kind of like anyone could take it up and he had seen the world, you know, he'd been to Italy, been all over the place, but at the same time, you are not prepared for this. A lot of people jumped into exploration because it was the hot craze at the time. But like, you know, if you are not trained or properly prepared and stuff, you should, you should not be doing that shit because the previous guy who was an explorer died halfway there. And it, Australia is a terrible place to get lost in the middle of because, like I said, 80% of Australia is basically desert, almost uninhabitable, to the point where today there's a community in the Australian outback that have built into the ground to live because underneath the ground it's a balmy 22 degrees, but above the surface, 50 degrees the majority of the day during the summer. So yeah, why you would transect to... one of the largest deserts in the world when you aren't an explorer surrounded by everything that wants to kill you? I have no fucking idea why you would do that. Well, it's because they offered a reward of 2,000 pounds. Oh, there so we go. he decided with no scientific exploring experience whatsoever <laughs> and with a reputation for getting lost in his own town, I think the best thing for me to do is to go exploring. So let's oh find gosh. out how that turns out for him here. <laughs> when the expedition <laughs> set off from Melbourne in August of 1860, uh, he made sure to load his wagons with everything that he figured that they were going to need. And you, you you figure a few months in the desert, what are you going to need? Shitloads of water. Uh, well, he went with Chinese gong, a heavy wooden table and chair set. What? 1,500 pounds of sugar and a what? stationary cabinet because, you know, where else are you going to put your stationary in a backpack or some shit? <laughs> <laughs> A stationary uh, cabinet and tables and chairs. Oh, yeah. He was loaded the hell down. The group was equipped more like a traveling circus than an exploring party. And they managed to get an astounding four miles on their first day <laughs> into the journey. So <laughs> I think um, I could do that. Like, just put my shoes on. I'm pretty certain I could beat that in the desert. They basically got just far enough that they could still see their houses when the streetlights came on, they could get back home, I guess. Which which is smart, because you get a little further in there and it gets dangerous. Yeah, oh yeah. Like we were saying. Um, yeah. It actually took them two months before they got to the uncharted territory. It took them Jeez. all the way till September 23rd of 1860, um, which at that point, several people that were on the excursion decided to resign, including... <laughs> the second in command, George James Landells wow. and the medical officer, Dr. Herman Beckler, which is just about the point in time when you go, well, shit, we don't have uh, the second in charge or a doctor. I think we should stop. I think we yeah, should all just quit here. Let's call it. Let's call it. <laughs> We've had a bit of fun. Let's take our fucking stationary cabinet and go home. But he, he decided that, uh, no, that's no, that's not that's not what we're going to do. As a matter of fact, you guys are going too slow. Uh, I know it's hot. Temperatures <laughs> over 100 degrees, but I'm going to go on ahead of you guys with some people. You guys hang out here and 
Um, we're going to get to the coast and finish blazing this. How about just me and three guys do the rest of the way? Mm. Um, he takes William Wills, John King, and Charlie Gray to continue on to the coast. And they almost made it, but as they were getting close, they ran into a dense mangrove forest. And due to the flooding and rains, uh, swamps were rising up. They never actually made it to the open ocean at all. So the mission was technically a failure, and they decided, Mm. fuck it, we're going back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On the way back to the base camp at uh, Cooper Creek, Burke accidentally set fire to the tent and destroyed (laughs) nearly all of their possessions and... (laughs) um, their their safety from the elements and their food and so now they're weakened by starvation and exposure and wandering right. through the desert slowly and the tropical monsoons start to hit there's a downpour more flooding more wet seasons uh before they get their gray uh the charles charlie gray four days before they get back he died uh <laughs> And they say they rested with him for a day and then they buried him and they eventually got to the rendezvous rendezvous point at Cooper Creek where they were supposed to meet up with the people they had left behind on April 21st, 1861. But when they got there, they were nine hours late because the rest of the party had given up waiting and left. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. the, The rendezvous party did leave a note and some food. Um, but they buried it and it wasn't found until too late. And yeah. while waiting for rescue, uh, Wills died of exhaustion and starvation. Soon after that, Robert Burke himself also died at a place called Burke's Waterhole on Cooper's Creek in South Australia. There is no exact date on when he died, but right. they generally accept it as June 28, 1861. Uh, what was that? feller's name i can't remember his name other than king uh one of the three guys that went with him he survived with the help of some aborigines which was really lucky because yeah there's reports i guess that robert burke was actually shooting at the aborigines to drive them off before he died so lucky he ran out of bullets and he died and king was saved by the the aborigines and in september um he made it back to Melbourne and then uh, Alfred, Alfred William Howitt helped to disinter the bodies that they left behind right. and return them to Melbourne in 1862, where they had a full state funeral and um, kind of were celebrated as successful, sad martyrs, I guess. And, <laughs> Um, the whole thing comes down to no martyrs, no to what they were Um, really close. A lot, they were by the sound, a couple of of times. (laughs) Yeah, it's like if you just gone around the mango forest, the the mangrove forest, you probably would have been all right. I I think, yeah, if they had brought the right provisions initially, uh, travel a little faster, pick the right time of year instead of the dead of the summer, yeah. Um, well, they're their summer, winter yeah. everywhere else. 
Cool. I mean, maybe it's because he was from Ireland. He didn't know that it was summer down there. <laughs> and and he was it. like, shit, it's hot for December. Yeah, well, I thought I knew it's normally warm around here, but bloody hell, it seems to be getting hotter. What the hell is going on? <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's Robert O'Hara Burke, uh, the one half of the, uh, what's the, failed exploring crew Burke and Willis. Wow. Wills, Burke and Wills expedition. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting because you you know you mentioned there that they are classed as a success because that's you know compared to the other explorer who died halfway through his version, um, you know they they did really well. They got kind of the majority of the way there. It sounds like like eighty percent of the way there. The the real weirdness here, and it's something that seems to be a common theme in the Victorian era, is why the fuck were they doing this? <laughs> I don't I don't know. Just and what where were the people that knew what the hell they were doing? I know. And like if you okay, I understand like the the benefits of connecting the north and the south of Australia through a passage, right? That makes sense. But if you're gonna do that, then surely as you do that, you either build a railway track as you're going or build a big fucking road as you're going. Doesn't doesn't that make sense? Like build up the the soil so that you can have like a carriageway. I know, like we're we're years before kind of true rolling out of industrialization in in this part of the world, but lay some tracks or some shit. You know, well, anything. At the very least, travel in like normal exploring sections where you take yeah. your base group and then you go out and do your scouting and come out and plot your next course. But I guess they would have had to know what the hell they were doing to do that. So <laughs> the fact I mean, that he, they got he to fancied where they himself. Did. Yeah, he was like, well, I, I took a boat all the way from Ireland to Australia. I'm an explorer, man. I know what yeah, I'm doing. yeah I, I guess in a sense. <laughs> all that just means is that you've got, uh, a, you know, you've become used to this, the movement of the water while you're on it. But, <laughs> like, I, I, he's definitely an idiot because I guess it's more the bravado thing, isn't it? And again, this is another mark, hallmark of Victorian, uh, what we would now describe as probably toxic masculinity. But to a certain extent, if you wanted to be a hero, you had to do something that was borderline stupid. You know, <laughs> like, I'm going to go to the North Pole, but you've only got, like, leather and wool and shit. Like, you're never going to make it. I'm Shackleton. I'll be fine. You know, like, it's just the, I'm going to climb Everest. No, you're not going to fucking make it. At least take a Sherpa with you, for Christ's sake. Like, right? it's all of these crazy things that people were doing because explorers and like people were getting famous on discoveries and exploration and stuff and you know it was a very heroic time but the thing is you look at a lot of these people that make the landmark kind of um discoveries or explorational journeys and all of that they are either a little bit crazy or very very arrogant or <laughs> or, or kind of stupid and like you know, don't, don't forget the fourth option. Totally what? fucking making it up like that, yeah. that other dude that found the mosquito people. Exactly. <laughs> the, you're, you might be lying. You might be making up a utopia that does not exist like Gregor McGregor. Um, <laughs> it's just it's kind of crazy. And like we look back on it now and we're like, what the, what the fuck were they thinking? They're doomed. But at the time, that shit was kind of normal. And. You know, yeah. I guess it had been established a long time before because Australia itself was as the result of a really kind of somewhat deluded 
exploration, you know, by by Cook and all of those people. But that the the exploration of the planet was was still a big thing. So I guess, I mean, it, it's a really difficult one to score this. He's definitely a fucking idiot. Like <laughs> he had he if had he not gone exploring. I, I probably I doubt we'd ever be talking about this guy. I mean, I, I know we wouldn't with a lot of the people, but like he probably would have just been a guy who served his time in the police force, retired on his military and police pension, and you know, nothing was ever heard from him again except maybe when he was killed by a spider or a snake or whatever <laughs> giant marsupial out there, whatever. But like for him to do something so clearly stupid. That was almost certainly going to lead to his death. Is just you question his his sense of priorities, really. Anyway, in terms of scoring this guy, because I mean, yeah, he did actually lead a load of people to their deaths. And, well, just three or four. Yeah, the rest of them three made or four. Back, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and like the stuff he chose to take in his exp- expedition, like just t- exchange that for water. And oh food. yeah. And you are fine. pounds of sugar. What the fuck? Were you going to be making, like, <laughs> ale on your journey or something? What were you thinking? Maybe you had a really it. sweet tooth. We'll never know. But, Ugh. you know, for that alone, I think this guy, because he, by the very fact he nearly made it, I'm going to give him an 81. Okay. So, All right. Yeah, because he did. he definitely did kill people. He brought... And and actually, they deserve their own fucking score for buying into this. Like, <laughs> he's he's loading up a china cabinet full of useless shit. Maybe I shouldn't be with this guy. Like right. it's too it's not too late to back out when you see him bringing a stationary <laughs> cabinet along with him. For Christ's sake, yeah. I'm going to bring my own staples with me. What the fuck <laughs> are you thinking? But yeah, I think an 81 is is a fair score for a guy who so. um, really didn't think anything through. Which is again as a hallmark of Victorian exploration. It's the foolhardiness of no planning. Uh, yeah. Very much Mark Thatcher. Um, I'm going to drive from Paris to Dakar. Oh shit, I'm lost. I'll just ask my. Hopefully, mummy will militarize half of Africa <laughs> to get me out. See, like, now if only his if if Robert Burke's dad had been a prime minister's mother, yeah, he might have fine saved. <laughs> Half of all, everyone in Australia would have descended on the outback to look for this stupid fucking idiot. Yeah, I think I think eighty one is fair because yes, people died in his watch, but like I'm kind of amazed that he nearly got there and he actually did better than an actual explorer. So right. for that, he gets a little bit of a reduction in the massive score. Um, <laughs> all right. This this guy is um, a little bit different, um, a very different line of work from uh, Mr. Burke. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of Lyndon Baines Johnson, the uh, most powerful prick in the world. Um, I have to give credit uh, for the NationalPost.com for a fair chunk of this article. That kind of comes into play later on. Um, and obviously other sources like Wikipedia and stuff. You'll notice that uh, the, the bit I've, start, uh, I've cribbed at the start is at least two years old by what I'm about to say. So, <laughs> as the world awaits the next nasty utterance from Donald Trump, there you go. That's, that's dated it a little bit. Although he's still saying stupid shit now. So who? Are we yeah, kidding? I just uh, I get to listen to it like this though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like now it's less like everywhere. <laughs> it's less less ever present. Uh, one can only marvel at how history itself has ended up in a shithole. Amid the chronic <laughs> shock and horrified reactions, people have become blind to the fact that he is not yet 
the most disgusting U.S. president in living memory. That title belongs to a Texan Democrat, Lyndon B. Johnson, a howling, flatulent tormentor of women whose cussing and racism remain breathtaking today. And actually, they were at the time. You know, this guy was saying shit off the record because he knew people were not going to be happy if it got out. Um, And if you're offended by Trump's level of vulgarity, you really, really don't want to uh, hear about Lyndon B. Johnson. But I'm going to tell you anyway. But at least Um, he had a cool cowboy hat. He did have a cool fucking cowboy hat. Better than that (laughs) fucking dome of quaff pubes (laughs) whipped into a shape on the top of Trump's head. Um, That's quite a description. That's that's (laughs) Uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson was born on August 27th, uh, 1908, near Stonewall, Texas, in a small farmhouse on the Pedernales River. He was the eldest of five children born to Samuel Ely Johnson Jr. and Rebecca Baines. Uh, Johnson had one brother, Sam Houston Johnson. Ye fucking are. Um, (laughs) And three sisters, Rebecca, Josepha, and Lucia. The nearby small town of Johnson City, well, there's a lot of coincidences with this dude's name. Uh, was, <laughs> oh, here we go. It was named after LBJ's father's cousin, James Polk Johnson, whose forebearers had moved west from Virginia. So he was just like, I was the first person here. I'm naming it after my town. I'm naming it after myself. You can now marry your cousins. Damn um, my family for never getting anywhere first. <laughs> just like plant your flag like right this is my town but there's like 50 of no it's mine no i don't care i was the first one to do it plus i i i dibs so uh johnson had english irish german and ulster scots ancestry so basically he's the whitest human being on the face of the earth um through his mother he was a great grandson of pioneer baptist clergyman george washington baines who pastored eight churches in Texas as well as others in Arkansas and Louisiana. Baines was also the president of Baylor University during the American Civil War. That's kind of kind of cool. Um, yeah. Well, I wonder what that was like because you never really yeah. think about there was still life going on during the war. Exactly. You just you're just in college while people are fighting yeah. out across the street. Eight hundred thousand people are dropping around you, and like you're like, oh god, there's so much noise from the musket fire outside. Can we close the window, please? <laughs> Fucking brother killing brother outside the window. Oh. Jesus Christ. Um, so Johnson's grandfather, Samuel Ely Johnson Senior, was raised as a Baptist, and for a time was a member of the Christian the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. In his later years, the grandfather became a, and I'm going to struggle to say this, Christadelphian. Christadelphian. Huh, I've is. never heard of it. Neither have I. One of those. Does it have anything weird... to do with the KKK? It, possibly, given the amount of swear words this guy comes out with towards racial <laughs> minorities. But no, I think it was just like, it was one of those, like I guess like the southern states have got a number of offshoots of different forms of Christianity, don't they? They have localized churches and stuff, and I think that's one of those. Uh, Johnson's father also joined the Christadelphian church towards the end of his life. Later, as a politician, Johnson was influenced in his positive attitude towards Jews by the religious beliefs that his father, um, his his family, especially his grandfather, had shared with him. Johnson's favorite Bible verse came from the King James version of Isaiah 118. Come now and let us reason together, 
Sadly, not something he practiced in private, uh, <laughs> LBJ. And nothing in there about, um, come now and let us reason together while I stand naked in front of you. Uh, there's nothing in there about his habit of doing that. In school, oh. Johnson was a talkative youth. That's code for being a loudmouth prick who was elected president of his 11th grade class. He graduated in 1924 from Johnson City High School. This, 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 fucking, this name's following him everywhere. Yeah. I don't, I don't, how do you live that down where you're I like, I don't know. I, my name Your is name... Johnson. I'm from Johnson Town. Johnson City High School. And yes, all of those names mean penis. So... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Here we go. And it followed him into his office, just like his penis followed people out of his office. Um, where Johnson participated in public speaking debates and baseball. He was a baseball fan, apparently. Yeah. At the well. age of 15, Johnson was the youngest member of his class. Pressured by his parents to attend college, he enrolled at a sub college of Southwest Texas State Teachers College. Uh, SWTSTC in the summer of 1924 where students from unaccredited high schools could take the 12th grade courses needed for admission to college that's a great idea that's yeah, that's, yeah. It's... we have a similar thing in this country we have like um uh i i i have two degrees one of them is an hnd so like an hnd is a higher national diploma so like if you kind of want to up your college entry points you take that and i upped my points to the point where i did a degree and a half thereafter so i actually ended up with like two degrees as a result because i did a a, a giant major and, and a minor in american studies so i actually ended up with two degrees because the hnd counted as half a degree um so yeah that's that's good that you have a similar system at least well kind of yeah. i mean we've got junior colleges and GED sure. tests so that's that's good it's it's important to have that because it provides a level playing field to a certain extent with people who you know may not have been in the best situation or in the right academic solution that they needed to do the studies they need um right. so johnson left uh, although johnson left the school just weeks after his arrival and decided to move to southern california i'm moving to hollywood um <laughs> he worked at his cousin's legal practice and in various odd jobs before returning to texas where he worked as a day laborer so it's like a little folly over to california that's weird like i i'm barely out of high school um, I thought about going back to get my high school equivalency. I'm mm. going to go work some legal jobs for my cousin. <laughs> in in California in the 1920s, like that's not the most glamorous of times to be over in like California, really. I guess like Gold Rush? It's End just the Gold Rush? Um, I mean, it's we're into Prohibition and Flappers yeah. and Hollywood starting up. So, I mean. That's true. There is that. I, yeah. It's just. I don't in the 20s you could just wander off with just getting out of high school and go do legal work pretty much apparently like, you could be a paralegal with basically no education that's and kind he of goes amazing. back and he's a ditch digger yeah it's like <laughs> no I, I miss my countryside i'm going back home uh, <laughs> in 1926 johnson managed to enroll in at swt STC again, which is now Texas State University. He worked his way through school, participated in debates and campus politics, and edited the school newspaper, The College Star. Uh, the college years refined his skills in persuasion, I bet it fucking did, and political <laughs> organization. For nine months, from 1928 to 1929, Johnson paused his studies to teach Mexican-American children at the segregated Wellhausen School in Cotula, 
some 90 miles south of San Antonio in La Salle County. Uh, the job helped him to save money to complete his education, and he graduated in 1930 with a Bachelor of Science degree in history. Good for him. Um, his certificate of qualification as a high school and his certificate of uh, qualification as a high school teacher. He briefly taught at Pearsall High School before taking a position as a teacher of public speaking. Didn't huh. know that was a thing. That's kind of cool. Wish we still had that going on. Uh, well, I mean, you get mixed in with like the Toastmasters and stuff. They've got true. courses. And... That's I mean, true. I don't I know if they have it in school. That. <laughs> but that's a, that's a kind of a cool thing. I think that'd be a good thing for a lot of people to take because it kind of oh, builds yeah. confidence, doesn't it? That's great. This is at the uh, speaking at Sam Houston High School in Houston. It's fucking these Johnsons <laughs> and Sam Houstons. These fucking names are cropping up <laughs> everywhere. It's like a whole fucking state's named after him and his family. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, when he returned to San Marcos, this is many years later, this is kind of like a, an afterthought, more of anything. Uh, when he returned to San Marcos in 1965 after signing the Higher Education Act of 1965, Johnson reminisced, I shall never forget, the, I shall never forget the faces of the boys and girls in the little well-housed Mexican school. I remember even yet the pain of realizing and knowing that the college was closed to pr uh, practically every one of those children because they were too poor. And I think it was then that I made up my mind that this nation could never rest while the door to knowledge remained closed to any American. I mean, that good for him. That's hella good stuff right there. Yeah. Now all of a sudden I like him. That's, what happened? That's super progressive. <laughs> for the mid-60s? That's an yeah. And a Southern Democrat as well. That's an incredibly progressive stance to be taking uh, for a man who, you know, I, he grew up in dirt, he grew up in basically poverty in the southern states. Like, I guess he can accept that. But the idea, it's the important part there is uh, any American. He right. is basically saying, We are all Americans. Stop drawing lines. And that in the 60s, that's a big fucking statement for a president to make right there. Yeah. Holy shit. I wish some people would make it again. Yeah. We kind of need to keep reminding ourselves that everybody is an American as long, you know? Yeah. So I think that's an important thing to, uh, to emphasize to your right yeah i miss when they used to talk about the melting pot and absorbing yeah. culture and becoming all american culture but and i know <clears throat> it's kind now of... you appropriate culture <laughs> it's kind <laughs> of uh it is sad that um that element has been so kind of mixed up and it's so fractured at the moment i do hope that that comes back I, I, we, we always go through extreme times in human history and hopefully we're coming towards the end of one now i do hope that the next generation who seems certainly a much more level-headed kind of calm compared certainly compared to my youth yeah uh, can can take that and run with it because they've they've lived through an extreme time and nobody should have to live in the post 9-11 world that we've experienced for the last 20 years anyway back to lbj Sorry in 1937 <laughs> after the death of uh 13 term congressman james p buchanan johnson successfully campaigned in a special election for texas's 10th congressional district that covered austin and the surrounding hill country he ran on a New Deal platform and was effectively aided by his wife. He served in the House from April 10th, 1937 to January 3rd, 1949. I kind of feel like running on a New Deal platform. It's kind of a no-brainer at this point because like anyone who proposed like a positive change, like you were bound to get elected because the country is so fucked at this point, 1937, 
you know the, yeah, the effects of the great times. depression are still being felt um and then all yeah. of a sudden um roosevelt comes up with his new deal and holy shit it actually works um yeah. you know like anyone who's like i am going to help you we are going to get through this together it's like how can you not elect a guy that says that you know right yeah so, and smart move on his part bit of a no-brainer but yeah president franklin d roosevelt found johnson to be a welcome ally and a conduit for information particularly about issues concerning international politics in texas so so Texas politics then. Um, it's, it's called Operation Texas, apparently. And the machinations of Vice President John Nance Garner and Speaker of the House Sam Rayburn. Uh, Johnson was immediately appointed to the Naval Affairs Committee. He worked for rural electrification and other improvements for his district, which is great because actually those communities, they're probably still, for a certain extent, to a certain extent, they're probably still living in the 19th century if they're not electrified. That's oh yeah, so they, if they don't have electricity coming out, and that's on the the end of like the Dust Bowl and yeah, Jesus, the Depression. That's... Yeah, you're, you're, so, he's doing good things. shit. <laughs> yeah, he's doing so far. He's doing great shit, and like yeah. his focus is on the poor, the the people who do not have the means to help. Or, or are being discriminated against, and he's helping these communities. When you electrify stuff, life immediately gets better. You have access to so many different things. Unless so, it's a chair. Yes, as long as it's not a chair. <laughs> um, Sorry. So, no, that's, that's funny. Um, so Johnson steered the projects towards contract... Oh, here we go. This is the first kind of red flag. Johnson steered the projects towards contractors he knew, such as Herman and George Brown, who would finance much of Johnson's future career. So the cronyism is Aha. already starting to creep in here. That's kind of shitty. You know, That's like I... kind of about when it really started, I suppose. I mean, it started mm. to spread from like uh, Atlantic City. They yep. kind of like coined it. <laughs> yeah. And like if we look at democratic um, politics for the last like 60, 70 years leading up to this point, the Tammany Hall shit. Like, there was a lot of cronyism in democratic yeah. politics at the time. And I guess it's still endemic in the 1930s as well, which is really, really sad. It just um, gets better. It <laughs> definitely <laughs> solved now. Uh, in 1941, he ran for the Democratic U.S. Senate nomination in a special election, losing narrowly to the sitting governor of Texas, businessman and radio personality, which I'm sure pretty much helped him a lot being a radio personality w lee o'daniel o'daniel received 175,590 votes 30.49 percent to johnson's 174,279 votes 30.26 percent that's a very narrow margin of victory like yeah just 1,300 and something votes that's, that's where did really the other narrow. percentage go yeah, well, I guess it's like your your kind of your third parties, your independents, okay. and, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, like there'll be a bunch though. of people running. Yeah. Um, now for his accidental military career, which is one of <laughs> accidental. The, it's fucking hilarious. Johnson was very good at dodging military action, <laughs> but 
you'll somehow he ends up with a medal so let me tell you about that okay. John, johnson was appointed a lieutenant commander in the u.s naval reserve on the 21st of june 1940 while serving as a u.s representative he was called to active duty three days after the japanese attack on pearl harbor in december 1941 his orders were to report to the office of the chief of naval operations in washington dc for instruction and training following his training he asked the undersecretary of navy james forrestal for a job in washington please don't send me to the front line i'm scared <laughs> um, he was sent instead instead to inspect shipyard facilities in texas on the west coast like that, that i get that that makes sense because you know it's useful use of his time I guess. Well, I what the fuck does this guy know about ships? He's been living in the middle of Texas his whole life. Was, was he already? He was already elected. Uh, he's kind of part of. Yeah, I, I I've skipped over a bit of it because it goes on and on. He was already in uh, politics at this point, so he's like in and around democratic politics, and he's being used in various capacities around there. So. Seems like a horrible idea to get involved with doing any sort of reserve military service if you're already in the yeah. protected zone there. I know <laughs> it's the the. It's the whole um, uh, I'm not a fortunate son type, oh, type situation. Yeah. yeah, I definitely feel that um, he probably did it to as a political maneuver. It's a very smart thing to do. You're like, if you are from Texas and you don't at least attempt to fight, I guess you kind of fucked as a politician, really, aren't you? So, and he's young mean, enough to still fight. So. Do, you, do you really trust a Texas Navy guy? <laughs> no. Well, wait. I guess not. they got the they got the Gulf they, there. They've got coasts for sure, but like he is not from the coast. He is <laughs> he is from like you said the Dust Bowl area. You know, there's, there's uh, by not, Austin there. Not, yeah, not a huge amount of coast going on around there. <laughs> um, so uh, he's ordered um, to the west coast of Texas in the spring of 1942. President Roosevelt uh, decided. He needed better information on conditions in the southwestern Pacific to, and send a highly trusted political ally to get it. And after a suggestion by Forrestal, Roosevelt assigned Johnson to a three-man survey team covering the South Pacific. He must have pissed off Forrestal because this fucking guy... Can I go to Washington? No, fuck off back to Texas. Uh, Forrestal, we need someone to go to the front lines to assess the... I'll just send... Just send Johnson. Fuck yeah. this guy. I don't like him. We're, 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 is it dangerous? Yeah, let's send Johnson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so Johnson reported to General Douglas uh, MacArthur in Australia, of all places. Ah, this is the link. This is the link between that two guys. <laughs> there we go. Um, and uh, and MacArthur sent him to make a track between the North and the South. Uh, no, he didn't. <laughs> Johnson and two U.S. Army officers went to the 22nd Bomb Group Base, which was assigned to the high, assigned the high risk mission of bombing the Japanese air base at Lai in New Guinea. On June the 9th, 1942, Johnson volunteered volunteered as an observer for an airstrike on New Guinea by B-26 bombers. Now, that kind of makes sense, because at this point, they're already bombing the shit out of this area. He's in one of, like, a multitude of bombers, and he's just like, I will go and watch, but that is that is fucking it. Well, if um, I'm going, I'm pushing the button, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're going, you kind of want to jump in, like, one of the machine gun turrets and yeah. just have a bit of a fight. You know, it's a bit of fun. <laughs> 
reports vary on what happened to the aircraft carrying Johnson during that mission. Johnson's biographer, Robert Caro, who does not think he does not think highly of Johnson, by the way. This guy points out a lot of the racism, uh, <laughs> accepts Johnson's account and supports it with testimony from the air crew. Uh, concerned. The aircraft was attacked, disabled, disabling one engine, and it turned back before reaching its objective, though remaining under heavy fire. So essentially, it was shot at, and it was like, fuck me, we are gone. And turned around, and they were like, quick, it's getting away. Shoot at it. Um, other claims <laughs> that it turned back because of a generator, tr because of generator trouble before reaching the objective, and before encounter encountering enemy aircraft, and never came under fire. This is supported by official flight records. So, uh, well, what happened was is he didn't go before they left, like they tell you to. Yeah, uh, gentlemen, <laughs> I can see firing in the distance, and I haven't had a piss. Can we turn around, please? <laughs> um, other airplanes that continued to the target came under fire near the target about the same time that Johnson's plane was recorded as having landed back at the original airbase. So it was fucking nowhere near. Yeah, as far as we can tell, it was nowhere near the fighting. However, MacArthur recommended Johnson for the Silver Star for gallantry in action, which I don't get. All he did was get shot at. If getting shot at is all it takes to get a fucking award, then literally millions of Americans should have medals right now. Because plenty of you people have been shot at. None of you have medals to show for it. I, they owe me a few medals. Damn they it. owe you a few, even if you've been to a fucking, <laughs> if you've been to a, a shooting range and there's been one careless fucking idiot and there's always <laughs> one at some point in your life, I guarantee you should have had a medal for that experience because he would have been dicking around half drunk. Um, so yeah, and this is what MacArthur said. For gallantry in action, fuck off, he didn't do anything. In the, in the vicinity of Port Moresby and Salamaua, New Guinea, on June the 9th, 1942, while on a mission of obtaining information in the Southwest Pacific area, Lieutenant Commander Johnson, to obtain personal knowledge of combat conditions, volunteered as an observer on a hazardous aerial combat mission over hostile positions. This is all very elaborate, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Uh, anyway, as our planes neared the target area, they were intercepted by eight hostile fighters, when, at this time, the plane in which Lieutenant Commander Johnson was an observer <clears throat> developed me mechanical trouble and was forced to turn back alone, presenting a favorable target to enemy fighters. He evidenced marked coolness despite the, hazard the hazards involved. His gallant actions enabled an him to obtain and return with valuable information. Thanks for being a sitting duck. Here's your fucking medal. Um, he didn't do anything. He got I don't shot know how you, at. How do you get, I'm, <laughs> I got a medal. What, what did you do in the war? I was an observer. I watched. The son of a bitch got, got a medal for going on a ride along. Exactly. And like they're saying, oh, he was he he just he demonstrated marked coolness. Like a nobody's gonna say Johnson shit his pants and was screaming like a like a child the entire <laughs> way there and back. They're always going to say, "Oh yeah, he was he was totally caught." Who's very presidential, very very statesmanlike. Yeah. But like at that point, like you're getting shot at by Japanese fighters. You're like, "Well, there's fuck all I can do about it. Right. Might as well accept my face. I I trust these guys. There's enough of them in this bomber. Plenty of other bombers around us. 
I'll just let whatever happens, happens. I'm a fatalist. Yeah, like, buckle in and take did. a nap. What the hell are you going to do? <laughs> I know. Exactly. He can't do shit. He's there to watch. He's not even like on the fucking, he's not even looking down. He's just observing the mission. What a just fucking, hanging out got the a medal for that. Revolver. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody want a coffee? I can do a coffee run in the back. We've got a hot plate. That'll do, right? <laughs> anyway, so that's Johnson's limited, ridiculous uh, military career, which somehow earned him a fucking medal, which is just ridiculous. Um, in the 1948 elections, Johnson again ran for the Senate and won in a highly controversial Democratic Party primary uh, against the well-known former governor, Coke Stevenson, who has a fucking hilarious name. I love that. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Coke Stevenson. Uh, probably... Um, Probably uh, Rick James's favorite ever politician. <laughs> Johnson drew crowds to fairgrounds with his rented helicopter dubbed the Johnson City Windmill, which is definitely something he tried to call his actual penis at some point in life. <laughs> it's a move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look, it's, <laughs> it's my election helicopter. Um, he raised money to flood the state with campaign circulars and won over conservatives by casting doubt on Stevenson's support for the Taft-Hartley Act, which is curbing union power. So I don't think he's going to stomp out them unions. I'm a Democrat. I'll definitely do it. No, you fucking won't. Stevenson <laughs> came in first in the primary but lacked a majority. So a runoff election was held. Johnson campaigned even harder and spent even more money while Stevenson's efforts slumped because he ran out of fucking money. So that'll yeah. do it. That's that's politics for you. Spend, outspend the other guy. Uh, <laughs> the runoff vote count handled by uh, this is where it gets really fucking fishy. The runoff vote handled by the Democratic State Central Committee took a week. Johnson okay. was announced the winner by 87 votes out of 988,295, an extremely narrow margin of victory. However, Johnson's victory was based on 200 patently fraudulent 608 ballots reportedly six um, reported six days after the election from Box 13 in Jim Wells County in an area dominated by political boss George Parr. The added names were in alphabetical order and written with the same pen and handwriting following at the end of the list of voters. So like Zebekiah, J, yeah. Good grief. Uh, I know. Some of the persons in this part of the list insist... Uh, wait, uh, the added names were alphabetical, same thing. Some of the persons in this part of the list insisted that they had not voted that day. Election judge Luis Salas said in 1977 that he had certified 202 fraudulent balance ballots for Johnson. Fucking hell. And he only uh, won by 87? Yeah, hmm. exactly. So there you go. So he lost. Uh, Robert Caro made the case in his 1990 book that Johnson had stolen the election in Jim Wells County, you fucking think, and that there were thousands of fraudulent votes in other counties as well, including 10,000 votes switched in San Antonio. Fucking hell, this is so dirty. S just switched them. Just like, <laughs> yeah, just move, just jury rig over there, please. Uh, mm -hmm. The Democratic State Central Committee voted to certify Johnson's nomination by a majority of one, 29 to 28, with the last vote cast on Johnson's behalf by the publisher Frank D. Uh, Frank W. Mayborn of Temple, Texas. 
Okay. The state Democratic Convention upheld Johnson. Stevenson went to court, eventually taking his case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Good for you, dude. But with timely help from his friend and future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas, Johnson prevailed on the basis that jurisdiction over naming a nominee rested with the party, not the federal government. Okay. Fuck. <laughs> Jesus. That's the, the stinks of bullshit. And Johnson soundly defeated Republican Jack Porter in the general election in November and went to Washington permanently dubbed Landslide Linden. Uh, Johnson persuaded, uh, dismissive of his critics, happily adopted the nickname. So, yeah, he's like, yeah, fuck you guys. I'll I'll take that. Landslider, um, 87 votes. <laughs> 87 <laughs> votes. Dodgy as fuck. Now let's talk about the good things Johnson was involved in, because there is a decent list of things that Johnson did. I, I'm not going to run through his entire history because we could be here all night, and I'm aware that you know we, we need to get to bed at some point. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about his good points. The new president, so when Johnson took um, control after Kennedy was assassinated, um, thought it advantageous to quickly pursue one of Kennedy's primary legislative goals, a tax Oh, sorry, me. Uh, that was a bit gross. Uh, a tax cut. I just did that too. <laughs> it's catching. Johnson worked closely with um, Harry F. Byrd of Virginia to negotiate a reduction in the budget below $100 billion in exchange for what became overwhelming Senate approval of the Revenue Act of 1964. Congressional approval followed at the end of February and facilitated efforts to follow on civil rights. In late 1963, Johnson also launched the uh, initial offensive of his war on poverty. Just an FYI, when you have when you start a war with a noun, you're going to lose. Nouns are indestructible. You're never going to beat them. Yeah, so. and it it typically it's a a war on a specific class of people, yeah, not so much a, an idea or a thing. Yeah, you're not you're <laughs> not really doing it for the reasons you say you're doing it. Like a war on a war on poverty, a war on drugs, a war on terrorism. None of them were won, and well, they all still very much exist to this day, and they were all distractions from what was really being proposed in those situations, like the criminalization yes. of, majority, of minorities and stuff. Hmm. Um, so recruiting Kennedy relative Sergeant Shriver, the head of uh, the Peace Corps, to spearhead the effort of the war on poverty. <laughs> in uh, March 1964, LBJ sent to Congress the Economic Opportunity Act, which created the Job Corps and the Community Action Program designed to attack local poverty. Uh, the act was created, uh, the act also created VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America, a domestic counterpart to the Police Corps. So those are pretty good. You know, the, yeah. the, the, he's at least trying. You know, it would be I nice appreciate if some of them still existed, I suppose. I, I know. And like um, a lot of this, you know, this will come from personal experience. You know, the guy will have seen grinding poverty in his time in Texas. So I kind of I, I understand that. And I actually applaud this part of Johnson. There's in every politician, because he, here's something we should know. Ninety nine percent of politicians believe their shit. Right. That doesn't matter how insane or full of shit you think they are. A lot of them <laughs> believe it wholeheartedly no matter yes. how insane it is and when they believe in stuff like a war on poverty they're probably doing it because they have a very personal connection with the things at hand so yeah. i applaud johnson for doing this it was never going to work 
but at least he's trying. And, you know, efforts by politicians, that this is what should be applauded because at least there's a framework of a plan that might work in the future there, potentially. Yeah, yeah. So uh, good for trying. Um, let's see. So, uh, yeah, President Kennedy had submitted a civil rights bill to Congress in 1963, which was met with strong opposition. Johnson renewed the effort and asked Bobby Kennedy to spearhead the undertaking for the administration on Capitol Hill, uh, partly to get rid of Bobby Kennedy because he fucking hated him. In <laughs> March of 1964, after 75 hours of debate, the bill passed the Senate by a vote of 71 to 29. Johnson signed the Fortified Civil Rights Act of 1964 into law on the 2nd of July. Legend has it that the evening after signing the bill, Johnson told an aide, I think we just delivered the South to the Republican Party for a long time to come. Anticipating a backlash from Southern whites against Johnson's Democratic Party, he was right. So, if he said that. It's just, it's just sad that yeah. it mattered. Like, I know that it had to happen. Yeah. It's kind of crazy that, you know, Jim Crow and all of the segregation and shit. It, they it just needed to do that. Yeah. It was such a, I don't know. Sorry. Just looking yeah. back on it, it was such a silly progression I know. that was so ass backwards all the way through from, I mean, the end of the 1800s to mm. the sick 1964. For I know. I know. I, there's, a, there's a similar thing in this country. <clears throat> there was a Labour politician in the early 1960s who, given the opportunity, managed to pass legislation in the UK which legalised um, homosexuality and legalised um, abortion. Not because it was popular, but because he knew it was the right thing to do. And God bless that man. People hated him for 25 years after that shit got passed. And he was absolutely right. The decriminalization of homosexuality. People were still going to prison for it's, being gay. That's just crazy. I can't wrap I'm my like, head around any of I that. know. I know. <laughs> and like the abortion thing, women were dying in the most horrific conditions because they were having backstreet abortions. Right. And like incredibly dangerous stuff. And like, look. You have to control this stuff. And I think the American government and the world to a certain extent is waking up to that with, with the drugs debate. Like you have to control this so that yep. people aren't like putting ridiculously dangerous chemicals into their bodies. Like if you control it, at least you know that it's not gonna fall on its ass, you know? Yeah. And things have been better with abortion. And I know I know it's a hot I topic hear. in America at the moment, <laughs> but you know, there is it's uh, i read a book called freakonomics it's about economics mm -hmm. and giant changes in culture and they were looking at why the crime rate in america plummeted in the 1990s and a lot of people were saying oh maybe it was because harsher sentences were handed out or because crack became more expensive or because of all this stuff and no <laughs> the the people who looked into it found that 75% of the reason that the crime rate dropped the way it did was because of Roe v. Wade, because there were a generation of disaffected kids just weren't there because their young mother, single mother families, those women had access to abortions. And yeah. these disaffected fatherless kids weren't existing. They just weren't there to to commit crimes. So they didn't as have a result, to come up beaten in orphanages yeah. and 
Yeah. Exactly. They didn't have to go through the system to be made into hardened criminals because their mothers had the option of not having them. And as a result, the crime rate plummeted. So good to yeah. a certain extent. I there's a debate to be had about that, but yeah, anyway, back to Johnson. <laughs> um Johnson wanted a catchy slogan for the 1964 campaign to describe his proposed domestic agenda for 1965. Eric Goldman, who joined the White House in December of that year, thought Johnson's domestic program was best captured in the title of Walter Lippmann's book, The Good Society. Richard Goodman uh, tweaked it to The Great Society and incorporated this in details as part of a speech for Johnson in May of 1964 at the University of Michigan. It encompassed movements of urban renewal, modern transportation, clean environment, anti-poverty, healthcare reform, crime control, and education reform. I am, on for, I am on board with the impetus behind all of that, no matter how yeah. watered down it yeah. became. I still feel like they missed a golden opportunity to oh, yeah. slogan it, uh, America needs a little Johnson in it. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's insert some Richard into insert some Johnson. No, not him. America. Not him, no, that happened later. Um <laughs> Um, so, and also another final fact, um, he championed the Voting Rights Act, an incredibly important piece of legislation, uh, which helped the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 get rid of national quotas, which had been around since the 1920s and doubled federal spending on education from $4 billion a year to $8 billion a year. Johnson also signed the Gun Control Act of 1968 into law, which was incredibly popular at the time because it was only a few years after Kennedy was shot. So people yeah. were actually in favor of gun control. Yeah, at that point. But, yeah, machine guns, though, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> and that, well, that wasn't so good. I like the, machine the idea guns. behind it was good, but then it morphed into something else. So, I mean, overall, those are some pretty good things. Yeah, you know, he did stuff. The ideas behind them are kind of noble. So, yeah, I mean, means well. He means well. He's a Southern Democrat that is in favor of gun control and, um, you know, healthcare reform, uh, cleaning up the environment. These are all kind of really rare things. So, I, I'm really pleased. Can't um, help but feel like it's a front for funneling money off of. <laughs> we're gonna get to that now. oh yeah sorry uh, <laughs> now let's get to the bad stuff um and let's start with the big thing the the biggest cloud over uh johnson's tenure in office at kennedy's death there were sixteen thousand american military personnel stationed in vietnam supporting south vietnam in the war against uh north vietnam Vietnam was partitioned at the 1954 Geneva Convention into two countries, with North Vietnam led by communist uh, led by communist government. Johnson subscribed to the domino theory in Vietnam. Uh, the domino theory, by the way, uh, was the impetus behind the majority of the Cold War conflicts. It probably wouldn't have happened. It was just a lot of it was paranoia. So yes. yeah. And he prescribed to a containment policy that required America to make a serious effort to stop all communist expansion. Because he was like, fuck, they're going to get down to Australia and we are going to lose access to all those poisonous snakes if it turns communist. <laughs> um, but, on take... but the women. <laughs> but the hot women, will they will all be 
forced into working and instead of sitting on the beach it's just not right um, <laughs> that's johnson that's definitely johnson's way of thinking on taking office johnson immediately reversed kennedy's order to withdraw a thousand military personnel by the end of 1963 by the end of 1964 there were approximately 23,000 military personnel in south vietnam which is up from 16,000 us casualties for 1964 totaled 1278 but by the middle of 1965 the following year the total us ground forces in vietnam had increased to 82,000 people in the late summer of 1964, Johnson seriously questioned the value of staying in Vietnam, but after meeting with the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Maxwell D. Taylor, declared his readiness to do more when we had a base or when Saigon was politically more stable. He expanded the numbers and roles of the American military personnel following the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which is... Like years later, we know that was all sorts of kind of crazy bullshit. Um, By the middle of 1967, so three years later, nearly 70,000 Americans had been killed or wounded in the war. In July, Johnson sent McNamara, Wheeler and other officials to meet with Westmoreland and reach an agreement on plans for the immediate future. At the time, the war was being commonly described by the press and others as a stalemate. Westmoreland said such a description was pure fiction and that we were winning slowly but steadily and the pace could excel if we reinforce our success. <laughs> what the fuck? Throw more bodies at it. Jesus. Yeah, it was. they were busy with the whole Air America thing and getting all yep. the cocaine and heroin in here. I mean, uh, never yeah. mind. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no drugs. No war on drugs. Um, though Westmoreland uh, sought many more, Johnson agreed to increase uh, and send 55,000 more troops to Vietnam, bringing the total in 1967 to 525,000 US military personnel. It's like the country's full. Yeah, uh, that boy, that's like one fifth of the population, I think, it's, of South Vietnam. That's crazy. Huge. That's ridiculous. On the 23rd of June, 1967, Johnson traveled to Los Angeles for a Democratic fundraiser. Thousands of anti-war protesters tried to march past the hotel where he was speaking. The march was led by a coalition of peace protesters. However, a small group of progressive Labour Party and SDS protesters uh, placed themselves at the head of the march. Uh, when they reached the hotel, they staged a sit-down. Efforts by march monitors to keep the main body of the marches moving were only partially successful. Hundreds of LAPD officers uh, were massed at the hotel, and when the march slowed, an order was given to disperse the crowd. The riot act was read, and 51 people were arrested, and pretty much everybody else there was beaten to within an inch of their life. Just a giant fucking riot broke out, and none of it would have happened had the LAPD not done what LAPD always does yeah well that's where they that's where it began yeah back then i mean i guess in the 50s yeah Mm. the start (laughs) of the vietnam riot season which went on and on and on it was just i mean we talk about the riots in the early 90s after the um the rodney king um kind of court case that was happening like every week in america around about vietnam like the kind of level of rioting that was every other day. As there, far yeah, as there was a lot of intensity with it. I mean, yeah, it was really sad. The, that it, and, and actually, 
it, it brought about the end of the war. That and Walter Cronkite, you know, um, Walter Seems... Cronkite decided he'd had enough of the war and yeah. talked about it on air, and that was the end of it. Middle America was like, Walter Cronkite doesn't like the war, right? We're out. Well, okay. it's it seems like we should have came to that conclusion a hell of a lot sooner, but you know, yeah, it's, this is dead. the point in time in American history where I feel like a lot of damage was done yeah. as far as our evolution as a, a, a culture and civilized happy society. Like yeah. we were stomping down people that wanted peace <laughs> and labeling them as bad people, and and yeah. <clears throat> And that's that's the start of the division between you know various people, and you know they talk about America losing its innocence, and that's kind of an open-ended idea because the idea that America had innocence is a question in itself. But yeah, certainly this period in time, the '60s and '70s, start moving kind of, into a more of a police state, and yeah, you know, like outlawing weed. And... Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely think that the post-war triumphs and the movement of society started to very much divide around about this point in American history. Um, there was This was one of the first massive war protests in the United States and the first in Los Angeles, ending in a clash with riot police. It set a pattern for the massive protests that were to follow due to the size and violence of this event. Johnson attended uh, attempted no further public speeches in venues outside of military bases, which, fucking hell... You're not going to get reelected if you're only doing speeches in military bases. That does that is not a good look in the late '60s. Holy Especially shit! Especially not when five hundred thousand of your military are overseas. So you're not really yeah, talking to dying. them either. <laughs> yeah, they're all dying. Or like a, I remember this statistic: a quarter of servicemen in Vietnam were addicted to heroin. So yeah. that's that's an insane number. And the irony is, um, we talk about addiction and the way addiction is is kind of approached. Of those people, of the 25% of servicemen, so let's say uh, 100,000 people were addicted to heroin in Vietnam, only 5% remained addicted to heroin after they'd spent a year back in the United States because they had the support of their family, they had jobs, and they had the structure around them. So they all kicked the habit except for a small few of them. So that just goes to show if you want to help someone beat an addiction, help them in multiple ways and give them a structured life. It it yeah. works. Don't worry, we fix part. that later. Oh yeah, yeah. The war on drugs totally. <laughs> work. Um, in October, with the ever increasing public protest against the war, Johnson engaged the FBI and CIA to investigate, monitor, and undermine anti-war activists. In mid-October, there was a demonstration of a hundred thousand at the Pentagon. Johnson and Rust were convict convinced that foreign communist sources were behind the demonstration which was refuted by the CIA. When the CIA is saying, no, it's you, you fucking idiot, that's <laughs> when you know you, you the paranoia has kicked in. So Yeah. Now let's move on to one of Johnson's other terrible things. Johnson continued the FBI's wiretapping of Martin Luther King Jr. that had been previously authorized by the Kennedy administration under Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. Yeah, that was pretty fucked up. Um, as a result of listening to the FBI tapes, remarks of King's extramarital affairs were made by several prominent officials, including Johnson, who once said that King was a hypocritical preacher. This was despite <laughs> the fact that Johnson himself had multiple extramarital affairs. Johnson right. also authorized the tapping of phone conversations of others, including the Vietnamese friends of a Nixon associate. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> general scummy bullshit right there. Um, oh. That'd be that's dark. 
Uh, it was not widely known for years, and this is where we get to the vulgarity of Johnson. It's not widely known for years that Johnson had a recording system in the Oval Office. This system, like the more infamous one of Richard Nixon, captured many of the very regrettable comments, but it would not be definitively described until the 1999 book by historian William Doyle. Transcripts of the recordings were edited and released through historian Michael R. Beslos, beginning in the late 90s. One reaction to Johnson's coarse language was a tendency to sanitise the public record. British journalist Henry Brandon has recalled how the Washington Post, who were in the room at the same time as him, rendered Johnson screaming bullshit at the top of his voice to a calm bull. Um, so that was it. Uh, he, you know, if he'd done that, if he'd been a politician in this day and age and he'd said bullshit, he probably would have, it probably would have helped him out. He probably would have oh, yeah. been more popular. Yeah. Bullshit. Well, He's one of us. Got to be, got to be strong and down to earth and batshit crazy, and they're all behind you. (laughs) He's he's demonstrating a lot of those things. Um, So exactly (laughs) how repulsive was Johnson? He was horrid enough that the way he said things was almost as bad as what he said. Anyone who came into contact with him was at risk of encountering a spectacle of burping, farting, nose poking, uh, nose picking. I beg your pardon. He didn't. Same, same. Same thing. (laughs) And. (laughs) <laughs> and crotch scratching. Congressman Richard Bolling, who witnessed some of this, told uh, Merle Miller, I wouldn't say Johnson was vulgar. He was barnyard, which is like, he's not bad. He's just an animal. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Like, he knows no better. He's just, a, he's an idiot. Just don't worry about it. Uh, worse, Johnson had no sense of personal space and treated conversations as a creepy hands-on affair. Miller learned from Washington Post editor Ben Bradley that you really felt as if a St. Bernard had licked your face for an hour, had poured you all over. And like he he smoked like a fucking chimney. That would have been absolutely disgusting for him to get that up close. For women, the ordeal was even worse. And Bradley claimed that Johnson groped Catherine Graham and was uh, bumping, bumping up against her, bumping up against the breasts of a Washington Post writer, Meg Greenfield. In her memoir, Graham said nothing of this and is suspiciously quiet about almost all of Johnson's peculiarities. She does admit she she was forced into kissing him on the cheek at least once. So that's sexual assault. Uh, a couple of different ways right there. A truly unlucky few got to see Johnson relieve himself. Reporter Sam Schaefer toured Johnson's Texas ranch and was stunned when Johnson urinated right in front of him in the open. Arthur Goldschmidt, a friend and United Nations official, was in the Oval Office when Johnson, uh, with Johnson when the latter suddenly headed with uh, headed for the washroom, took a crap and then shaved and showered all while continuing his conversation as though we weren't, uh, he was doing the most normal thing in the world. So he was like, no, 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 I need to keep talking to you. Come in, please. So he took a shit, had a shave, and then got in the shower. And they're like, I think we should probably just wait until you've done all of this, mate. He was just ahead of his time, man. Everybody does that on their cell phone these days anyway. Yeah, like, you know, when you're not in a Zoom call, you clearly just, yeah, definitely. Um, as for what Johnson was actually saying during all the above, he was known for folksy aphorisms that were crude, sometimes racist and often weird, including it was raining as hard as a cat pissing on a flat rock, um, which I've. Why a flat rock? I don't know. Splatters a bit. 
I guess uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as straight as an Indian shits, which I, I, how do you, I don't. How do you get a reference for that? I don't know where he's going with that. What was the sample size? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, like you've you kind of killed off the majority of the native population already. So I like and the their shitting patterns specifically mentioned. That that seems very odd. Um, and the importance <laughs> of fighting an opponent till he's shitty as a bear. <laughs> huh. What the fuck does that mean? I, oh to God. me, I, I would figure that that just is a drunk bear. Pretty which, much. Yeah. I mean, bear, bears maybe get drunk. We don't know. Maybe they eat fermented fruit. Who I knows? Bet I, I bet they do. Bear. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Getting some of that honey, rubbing it on there, then you got a bit of mead going. That's great. Uh, <laughs> these became more disturbing in his retirement years when UPI reporter Bill Face was told by him that subsequent White House economic policies were the worst thing that's happened to this country since pantyhose ruined finger fucking. Uh, <laughs> wow. What a um, statement. Good lord, man. <laughs> that's your president. Ah, oh, god damn these pantyhose. I can't go around finger fucking people anymore. What the fuck? Was he just throwing digits in people? Well, no, they weren't paying attention or what? Oh, that's like, terrible. Good oh lord. my god. I, I, I mean, don't even I don't know I do, I've never heard I mean some of these you can say yeah it's folksy aphorism sure but who says that yeah, even well, back in the 60s and 70s that's yeah that's kind of a lot where it's like that was that's what stopped you is pantyhose <laughs> yeah thank god for pantyhose then Jesus Christ <laughs> <laughs> the pantyhose bit was a was part of a, a troubling pattern. Biographer Woods learned that Johnson would tell close friends that his own wife, the delightfully named Ladybird, was the best piece of ass I've ever had. But he still hey, cheated on her. That's so. oh well, it was nice to say, yeah. darling. I, guess... <laughs> I hope I'm here. referring I to tell you something that from the boys, <laughs> <laughs> darling. I'm holding a cabinet meeting while taking a shit. I want to give you a compliment. Come in here. <laughs> You're the best piece of ass I ever had. Can you pass me a towel so I can shower in front of these men? Uh, uh, Jesus Christ. Well, um, to, to be fair, if my wife referred to her friends or me to her friends as the best piece of ass she's had, I would be, oh, I would be yeah. blushing. As men, I would fucking take that. Right. You know, somebody, oh, my God. Best I've ever had. Like, as men, we're like, <laughs> yeah, I was. But you kind of can't say that about women to other it's people. It's polite. It's not polite. Even like we say the 60s, like it was a different time. It was much more conservative. Back there. You can't go around saying that your wife is the best piece of ass you've ever had. No, dude. Jesus. Right. Uh, like, he must have been drunk. Surely he's got to be drunk through most of these. Right? I would imagine that seems about accurate. That's Constant about the time drinking, when you sure. keep the whiskey in the office. Absolutely. Yeah. And the secret cabinet department bit, you know, in the, the drawer. <laughs> Um, recorded Oval Office telephone conversations included a 1964 exchange with staffer Ralph Dungan concerning female appointees to government positions. Here we fucking go. Johnson kept asking Dungan about their looks. Former staffer Yolanda Boozer, who's got an awesome fucking name, right. told Miller that Johnson would comment if white female uh, White House employees gained any white uh, gained any weight provoking anxious dieting these poor fucking women 
if, if I mean, the one good thing about putting on weight is that at least he's not going to rub against them. Maybe fuck. <sighs> Wear pantyhose and put on some weight. You might be safe. Right. Um, <laughs> good lord. Jeez. Smile, on... honey. You look party. You might party. Yeah. Did you have I ever told you about my wife? Um, regardless <laughs> of gender, Johnson's treatment of subordinates could be appalling. In one of her very uh, rare uh, confirmations of Johnson's behavior, Catherine Graham says she saw Johnson apoplectically yelling at yay Jack Volante over some mistake, screaming at him for over 10 minutes consistently. He must have lost his voice. Uh, Who screams for 10 minutes? That's that's quite intense. That's a Uh, lot of angry. That's a lot. She describes the tirade as callous and inhumane. A senior advisor, James H. Rowe Jr., reportedly quit after witnessing a similar incident. Johnson's own vice president, Hubert Humphrey, informed Miller that Johnson uh, Johnson's need to control people caused him to stay caused him to say of certain individuals that I've got his pecker in my pocket. This guy is obsessed with penis. He yes, well, his name's Johnson. His name is Johnson, and he comes it from works. Johnson Town. He does. Johnson City High School There we well. go. Johnson City, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if there's a whole city, not a town, there's a city of Johnsons. It's a whole city of penises out there. And then we get to the worst part. Uh, then there's his use of the N-word. Although Johnson styled himself as a civil rights crusader and did make uh, progress on civil relations, on, on rights, uh, race relations, I beg your pardon, he still presided over a United States torn by racial violence. His public and private statements show that he never realized himself, uh, he never realized he himself may have been part of the problem. For example, his biographer Robert Caro said he referred to the manual labor of his, use, of his youth as N-word work. Maybe he was trying to take the power away from the word. I think it's more like he doesn't know what he's doing. He just thought that's what it was called. Like the spirit animal. I just thought that's what that was called. I didn't know it was bad. No, no. That's, um, yeah, it gets worse, though. A record, a recorded 1964 telephone conversation with the hapless Jack Volante touched on Johnson's electoral chances in Texas for an upcoming presidential race. I think I can take every Mexican in the state and every N-word in the state. Take them where? <laughs> like, for, for the vote. It's kind of crazy. Several oh. weeks before the presidential vote, Johnson spoke before <clears throat> a New Orleans crowd. Oh, God. About how Southern politicians constantly twisted all issues towards race. That was a valid point. But then the speech became strange. All they, the voters, ever hear at election time is N-word, N-word, (laughs) N-word. Woods discovered that somebody sanitized the official record of the speech substituting the word N-word. Uh, with other things, but witnesses confirmed that he really did say three of them in a row. You mean like uh, car horns and barking Jesus. dog noises? I mean, like he probably would have, <laughs> they probably changed it to like, I don't know, something that wasn't racial, I guess. Oh. Uh, Robert Dalek learned of a 1967 meeting in the Oval Office with Texas state official Larry Temple concerning, concerning the possible black candidates for Supreme Court. Johnson stressed he would consider only high-profile people. When I appoint a N-word to the bench, I want everyone to know he's an N-word. Fuck. 
Yeah, I think maybe he just thought that meant black. Yeah. I he's, yeah. I don't know how else you I mean he's he doesn't seem to be racist as just far stupid. as like like he's not like a white supremacist. Oh no. Necessarily. No. Uh he just doesn't realize that that's not nice. I think yeah. he's just completely oblivious. Yeah, dude, just fucking stop. I, it's just, it's, yeah, no one's able to challenge him at this point because he's so fucking intimidating and so angry and arrogant and out of control and cronyistic and almost becoming a demagogue that no one's gonna, like, of all the things you could say, look, please stop using the N word, dude. Like, instead of that, they were like, maybe we should get out of Vietnam. You know, <laughs> like like the, the N word issue is like of all, that was probably lower down the risk, the list of priorities of getting this maniac away from power as possible. Like we can fix his language later. Let's just get him out of the fucking White House for now. <laughs> uh, and surprisingly, when uh, uh, race rioting erupted in Los Angeles in 1965, Johnson was bewildered and he confided to aide uh, Joseph Califano his fear that N-words will end up pissing in the aisles of the Senate. Ironically, 60 years later, it was actually white supremacists that did that for the most part. So yep. I, 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 he redneck got it wrong. In the, in the aisles of Congress. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, wearing ridiculous costumes. Well, they did it as well. In the end, however, it was the uncontrollable Vietnam War that destroyed Johnson's administration and wrecked his legacy. William Doyle unearthed a fitting quote from a mo uh, moment in mid-1965 when Johnson was moodily strolling on the grounds of the White House, cursing, I don't know what the fuck to do about Vietnam. Get out! Of course you know what to do. <laughs> Fuck's sake, man. Um, uh... I'll end with this fitting quote from historian Kent Germany who talked about Johnson's poor public image, saying, and this is perfect, this kind of sums up Johnson perfectly, the man who was elected to the White House by one of the widest margins in US history and pushed through as much legislation as any other American politician now seems to be remembered best by the public for succeeding uh, an assassinated hero, steering the country into a quagmire in Vietnam, cheating on his saintly wife, exposing his stitched-up belly, using profanity, picking up dogs by their ears, swimming naked with advisors in the White House pool, and emptying his bowels while conducting office business. Of all those issues, Johnson repu Johnson's reputation suffers the most from his management of the Vietnam War, something that has overshadowed his civil rights and domestic policy, com uh, policy accomplishments and caused Johnson himself to regret his handling of the woman I really loved, the great society. That's a kind of okay. a perfect summation of Johnson right there. And thus ends the tale of LBJ. Just fucking, Man. just how the fuck? <laughs> uh, so there you go. What do you make of that? Um, Shit. There's, there's a lot of it where I guess I can find like forgiveness on stuff. He's just a rude, crude cowboy from, yeah. you know, the old Westy times. Like, so, so fucking rude. Like, this guy is... We talk about politicians being statesmen. I use that word a lot. Being statesman-like is someone that you want to... You have faith in to make decisions of a sensitive, delicate nature. Someone who can 
find the middle ground, someone that can compromise, someone that is smart enough to play the game with people that don't necessarily want to be in the room with them. Johnson right. does not seem like one of those people from any of this. No. No, he's rude, crude, sexual harassing, yeah. southern, southern boy. I mean, cowboy, yeah. basically. I, that's basically, why he wore that yeah. hat all the time. He's like the oh. most powerful cowboy in the world. And prior to George W. Exactly. And that's, <laughs> and I guess, part of the problem as well is that outside of America, there's this idea that American politicians and presidents have been seen as yeehaw cowboys. And I think part of that can be traced back to LBJ and his behavior. Well, we've gone through a run of them. I mean, LBJ yeah. to, to, uh reagan shortly after yep. that to from reagan to bush to the other bush who yeah even to um the first roosevelt teddy was oh, an yeah. actual fucking go. cowboy yeah rough know? rider right? rough rider and a hell of a guy but you know unfortunately like the good parts of the cowboy's nature a lot of which roosevelt actually embodied um have been <laughs> overtaken by the brash braggadoshi um caref like kind of reckless um nature that people sort of associate with cowboys and unfortunately that's something that has been crystallized by behavior like you were mentioning like Reagan Bush and you know an LBJ one of the core yeah. kind of founders of that way of viewing american presidents yep yeah i <clears throat> I don't know that he was like one of the worst ones because we just oh, no. we we went on a slide. Um, <laughs> yeah, you did. Just kind of just wandered right the hell off. Mm. Um, but I mean, gosh, his just obliviousness. Yeah. To oh yeah, how you conduct yourself around other human beings. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, he would not get out of Vietnam. You know, he's right. responsible for tens of thousands of completely unnecessary deaths so much just almost yeah on the basis of ah, i started it i don't know yeah. what to do now we, we're america <laughs> we win we have to continue it's like no you don't right Stop killing people and also you could say had it not been for lbj being the person he was would you necessarily have had the counterculture movement it probably wouldn't have been quite as high profile as it was had they not had someone to rally against like lbj and his government it may have uh spread slowly and more organically yeah. and and better i guess yeah. if they didn't have the war to rally against we may have actually made some better advancements in technology and civilization yeah. exactly. so oops yeah um, for that not... and all the deaths in the war and like my mm. least favorite period of time there mm. um i'm i'm gonna put him up there at a 90 just because there was mm. no fucking reason to be in vietnam <laughs> why i know we, we we talk about um you know you talk about the korean war and a lot of other wars around that time and, and the 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 um the british empire had a lot of those like we mentioned the crimea crimea war and the boer war and stuff like that all a lot of these kind of somewhat pointless exercises yeah. in in basically military saber rattling that's a lot of it was like look at us we're powerful let's everybody die now sort of thing you know <laughs> like and a lot yeah. of vietnam and korea it feels pointless i mean I, I there was definitely a point 
to the first Gulf War. You know, when Kuwait was invaded, that would, you know, there was there was consensus that that was the right thing to do around the vast majority of the world. Loads of people went into that war. Second one, definitely not. But Vietnam, okay, maybe at first, you know, you got communist aggression, maybe you're not into that. But the fact that it went on as long as it did and caused 70, 80, 90,000 deaths and all the rioting and the property damage, just... Think about this. Dude was a history teacher, right? Yeah. Apparently he missed that whole part bit about the French there that just yeah. happened. <laughs> it's just like, for a man who is... Like you say, as educated as he eventually became to have ignored the lessons of history, despite the fact he is surrounded by people who could readily acknowledge and tell him about all the mistakes that this is exactly the same as, um, yeah. is kind of shocking. And it, it's something that we focus on a lot in this podcast is that people don't seem to learn. No, really. we just keep doing the same shit. Same shit over and over again. <laughs> history is a flat circle. Um, so, yeah. I, I'll I'll take uh, ninety for LBJ because um, he did some really good things, or at least he attempted to. And for him to have fucked up his presidency the way he did, yeah. I mean, there aren't too many people who start on such a wave like you are following one of the most revered Americans in history, right? He is assassinated in tragic circumstances, and you get the rub of saying, I am going to continue his legacy. His work will not go unfinished. To start from there, where people are like, oh, thank God, this guy we believed in, his right-hand guy is going to carry on. We love this guy by proxy. To go from there to Logan right. Paul finding a <laughs> Japanese corpse and filming it and putting it on the internet, that's like, <laughs> that's quite a fucking slide, yeah. really. Well, you know? And again, that was another uh, history learning moment there where uh, Lincoln, he's assassinated and yeah. uh, his vice president comes in here and dicks everything up and says, exactly. no, we're not doing any of this anymore. <laughs> um, it's, it, you, you've been given a golden opportunity. I understand that inheriting somebody else's legacy is not always that easy, but it's it, if you want to succeed follow through with their policies because they are going to be martyred almost immediately after they're assassinated. That's one yeah. of the reasons Reagan got reelected was because someone tried to kill him. Right. And yep. didn't it didn't work. He took a bullet and he was like, I'm Ronnie, I'm fine. And like everyone was like, oh, oh yeah, we'll definitely reelect you. So the reason Thatcher was reelected was because she went to war and won the Falklands. So, you know. Yeah, that's another weird ass one. Oh, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> there we go that's that's lbj um one of the most probably the mm, it's hard to know now whether he's the most vulgar american president because there's probably worse people before him and there may have been worse people since but definitely on think he's record I, I th yeah i think trump and him are on par mm. with vulgarity mm. especially off off camera oh yeah for, for fucking sure <laughs> yeah um but yeah, LBJ and um, our uh, explorer friend, Mr. Burke, um, who, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating case. So um, that's that's our episode. This will be coming out um, around about New Year. So if you guys are looking for the audio version, please uh, keep an ear to the ground. We're also releasing these in video format, which you can watch on Spotify. We're also available on YouTube and um, Twitter 
and um, Instagram. If you look for History's Greatest Idiots on Instagram and uh, Greatest Idiots on Twitter. And also, if you go to patreon.com slash history's greatest idiots, you can support us directly and get a load of cool free merch if you're a Patreon for long enough. So we've got loads of awesome design stuff. Please go there. We'd really appreciate it if we could get some Patreons in. But um, this has been a great episode. I've had a lot of fun researching LBJ because despite the fact he's a bit of, bit of a gross dude, it's like it's fun to research him. Yeah, my favorite uh, incarnation of him, though, is on the American Horror Story, the new ones, where he's like dealing with the aliens, and that makes him awesome. So I didn't know that existed. I haven't <laughs> watched the American Horror Stories. My wife's watched them, and it's something that I, I've been meaning to watch. Oh, they're great. Um, so I might have to get around to that. I might have to watch that. That sounds really good. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's our show for this week. So if you do find yourself being completely unprepared for a dangerous uh, mission out into the middle of a giant fucking desert, or if you start off well in your job, but develop a power thirst that can only be satiated by the deaths of 10,000 of your fellow countrymen, then maybe rethink your actions, because it's never too late to stop being a fucking idiot. Um, and we will see you next time. Derek, would you like to say goodbye, please? Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for 24 great episodes so far. 24 episodes. <laughs> next episode, episode 25, will be the last in the season. However, we're not going to, we, we will take a little bit of a break, but it's not going to be like a massive break. We'll take we'll my birthday off. We'll take our, we'll take our <laughs> birthdays off for sure. And uh, we'll go straight into season two, where we hope to bring you loads more amazing idiots. So look forward to that in the not too distant future. But until then, we will see you all soon. Take care now. Bye.